Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Jeff Loomis, who is basically a legend in the metal guitar community. I don't think that you can be into metal guitar playing and not know who he is. And if you don't know who he is, what rock have you been living under? Anyways, because of that, I don't think he needs much of an introduction. We're going to get right to it. I introduce you, Jeff Loomis. Jeff Loomis, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you, guys. How are you? Doing great. It's uh, nice to talk to you. It's been a long time. I know we were just saying that, but it's been a long time. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's it's great to be here and great to reconnect again during these difficult times. <laughs> Have they been difficult for you? I, I shouldn't say it like that. I mean, I've been taking a lot of my my downtime to work on music. I I've been working on a solo album these last few months. It's my third solo album for Century Media. It's going to be an all-instrumental thing. So really, I've just been keeping busy doing that, doing guest solos for people. Um, I'm actually writing a little bit of music for video games, trying to really just get more into... The plug-in. The plug-in as yep. well. That's a huge thing that just came out for me. I'm also doing solos for the new Arch Enemy album. I don't even know when we're going to release that yet, but uh, I'm going to start work on that very soon. And we have a tentative tour coming up for September... Uh, if that happens, let's hope so. That might actually happen. Yeah, I hope so. That would be great. I, I need to play live again, you know, feeling the need <laughs> as we all are. Sounds though like you've kept pretty busy though. Doesn't sound like there's been a lack of things to do. Dude, uh, there's always something to do here. You know, I'm very fortunate to have like a nice little uh, man cave here at my house, you know, that I can come down to anytime I want and uh, and make music, you know. I've taken a lot of the extra money that I've earned and put, put it into some nice gear here. And it's just a nice place to create, you know, it's um, nice settings and uh, relaxing. So this is where I do all my stuff. Just out of curiosity, when you work these days, when you go to the room to work, how much of your time is like hard guitar practice, like just getting better, maintaining versus working on writing something because sounds like you're doing a lot of writing well you know a lot of the practicing was done when i was when i was a young kid yeah. you know i put hours and hours in 15 hours a day the funny thing is is that both of my parents were school teachers right so you would think that they would see guitar as kind of more of a hobby for me do the guitar thing and then make sure you go to college but they were so supportive of me playing my instrument and believe it or not, my, my mother actually let me stay home from school sometimes just because she knew I loved it so much, you know, my kind of she mom. could see the joy in my face. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I was extremely lucky just to have parents that were very supportive of, of everything. You picked the right parents. I did, man. I'm, I'm, my dad played a lot of music. He played guitar a little bit, had a gigantic record collection. So, I mean, that's what really got me into music in the first place was just him playing music. But getting back to your question about practicing, it's like, I, I still practice a little bit every now and then, you know, there's always cool YouTube videos out there to learn like a new style. Like lately I've been into the whole Jerry Reed country finger style picking thing, you know, and uh, trying to pick up on that a little bit. But uh, most of it's really just coming up with riffs and, and composing and just playing and trying to write new stuff. You know, that's how I spend most of my time. Practicing is kind of just like set aside. It's like, for certain things that I want to pick up on that I can try to get better at. I remember last time we talked about uh, what you were working on. 
which was Conquering Dystopia days, you told me that you were taking gypsy jazz guitar lessons. I was going to try, but then the guy that I was going to take lessons from in Seattle just stopped doing it. So I just started kind of, yeah, I just kind of just tried to pick up some things online, but I didn't focus too terribly hard on it because immediately after I started talking to you, I I kind of got the the arch enemy gig, you know, in 2014. And that really takes up a lot of my time, man. As you know, we're constantly on the road and it, it almost seemed like I was touring six years straight with that band. So <laughs> having the time off right now is just, it's been kind of a, a good thing for me personally, you know, to get your headspace kind of back and, you know, just to kind of free your mind a little bit, you know, it's been nice for me to be off this last year, actually. So just out of curiosity, because you talked about your parents being supportive, do you think that they were supportive because they saw that you had a future in it? Like that, that was like a conscious thought, like he might actually be able to do this. Let's support it. (laughs) Or were they just happy that you were really into something? I think it's a little bit of both there. You know, they never really knew too much about the business. You know, they, it almost seems like my dad has since passed away, but my mom doesn't really understand the whole business side of the whole thing. I think she just saw the joy in my face when I played guitar and she just knew that it made me happy. But uh, they were always at shows, you know, when I was playing in Nevermore, they came out and saw me play. And back then it was a lot more insane, you know, because we were all partying and stuff like that. And they saw that side of it and they didn't really approve of that. They didn't but, party uh, with you? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> my dad had a few beers, you know, but they didn't party like us now. <laughs> I don't think anybody did. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was just a lot of fun having that support. And, you know, it's nice to see that, you know, when a lot of parents are like that with their children and that support is, it's, it's a positive thing because music can be very good for kids. You know, it can be awesome. Makes them smarter among other things. I think so. It was interesting because I remember growing up, my parents were totally supportive of the music thing. They weren't too into me playing metal, but they were supportive of the music. Like it wasn't a question. Like my friend's parents who wouldn't let them play guitar or they would let them play guitar or whatever instrument, but it would always be with like uh, as an asterisk, it was obviously school is what you actually have to do. This is where your future is going to come from. Cool about your hobby, have fun with it. But uh, they never allowed them to take it seriously. And it was never even a question in my house. Yeah. I, I think some people go through that where they struggle with the way that their parents treat them, you know, and that's sad to see, you know, I remember this funny story when I was teaching guitar lessons when I was like, I would say 15, 16 years old, I had a, a job at a local music store teaching lessons. And uh, a lot of the kids that would come in would be, you know, my age and stuff. And uh, they'd be like, the only reason I'm here is because my parents sent me here. I don't even want to do this. You know what I mean? So yep. A lot of times it I was me just that. being like in, in the supportive role, you know, trying to listen to them. You know, some kids were like, just not not into the vibe of being there at all you know they didn't want anything to do with music they were just there because their parents sent them there you know (laughs) that's why i stopped teaching that was my first job uh like when i was 15 or 16. i remember getting those kids who did not want to be there it was like what am i doing and that just makes it longer for you right it's just like that that half an hour seems like two hours or something so it's it kind of sucked yeah it's like it's like you don't want to be here I don't want to be here with you. What are we doing? Exactly, man. Yeah. That lasted for a while for me. You know, I did that between like the ages of 15 to 19. 
And, um, it was, it was fun. You know, it taught me a lot about interacting with people and stuff like that. And it was an eye opener to say the least. And then when I turned 19, I moved out to the West coast here in Seattle to join the band Sanctuary. So that's kind of how my musical where are you from? Career started. I'm from Wisconsin. Grew up in the Midwest. I hear the accent because I, you started talking since we haven't talked in a few years. <laughs> it's still there a bit, isn't it? That's yeah, weird. oh, it's totally there. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't yeah. dialed into Wisconsin accents yet. I am now, and uh, I was. You started talking, and uh, I was like, "That's not a Pacific Northwest accent." <laughs> no it is not i know it's like it's so funny that after what 28 28 29 years of living here now i still have it so it's uh hasn't quite gone away why'd you move to get out of wisconsin you know because there was not a lot going on there no offense against wisconsin it's where i was born and raised and there's a lot of great people there but you know musically speaking the closest city would be milwaukee you know that i would have to travel to to go see a show or go record shopping or something like that and musically speaking there wasn't a lot going on band wise there so i heard from a friend that there was an audition for the band sanctuary in seattle they were looking for a new guitar player somebody actually talked me into it a friend of mine said dude you can play that stuff so i just basically learned like three or four of the songs and put them on a cassette and sent it to the guitar player by the name of lenny rutledge and Basically, he called me like a week later and said, hey, come on out here, you know? So, I mean, it was literally, literally that fast. I uh, hopped on a plane, moved out, and then two months later, I ended up moving to Seattle and joining the band. This was right during the whole grunge movement in the early 90s in Seattle. So Lenny, the guitar player, kind of wanted to switch uh, the music from metal to more of a grunge type of sound. And me and Warrell Dane, the singer, and Jim Shepard didn't want to do that. We kind of wanted to stick more to our metal roots. And that caused a huge conflict in the band. And two months after I joined the band, the band broke up. And the next day, the band Nevermore was formed. So in a nutshell, that's how that all happened. Yeah, I, th I think you guys were right. Yeah, I think so too. No need to jump on any bandwagons, you know, and no disrespect to the whole grunge movement, but we wanted to stay to our to our heart, you know, metal. I don't think there's any benefit in trying to be something you're not when it comes to music or life, but uh, especially music. The music that you're most passionate about is going to be the music that you work the hardest at. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And I think back in those days, there was this weird idea going around that it wasn't possible to have an actual career in heavy music. I don't think that that's the case anymore. But I think that a lot of people thought that it wasn't a, a real option. So I remember a lot of people who were metalheads wanting to do grunge or alternative music or a little bit later they wanted to do like radio rock kind of stuff. And most of the time I noticed that those projects ended in abject failure because they weren't good at those styles. It's not like they were Alice in Chains level. They were like a bad, they were typically a C-rate version of one of those really good bands because they didn't actually like that style of music. They just thought they needed to do it in order to get famous. That never works. Totally agree. Yeah. What's your uh, favorite grunge band, Dale? <laughs> Alice in Chains. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. That's mine too. Yeah. I think Soundgarden probably cl comes in at a close second for me. Chris Cornell I, I, comes in second yeah. for me, but not Soundgarden. Dude, that, that I remember, I remember the very first day that I heard that song on the radio going, oh my God, this is like a really, really new sound. And then of course I liked it, you know, but it was just like, they overplayed it so damn 
what's that song called? Uh, it smells like teen spirit. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And they played that one just a thousand times on the a local radio station here and just buried them into the ground. Basically I could, I could see why, you know, um, why it got irritating, but you know, there you go. That's what happened. <laughs> just out of curiosity, since, uh, you basically at this point, you could kind of say you're kind of from Seattle, even though, mm-hmm. I mean, you're technically from Wisconsin, 28 years you're you're from Seattle too. When you think about those bands, the grunge bands and that whole movement, do they feel like local bands that got big to you? In a way, yes, yes, especially with like Alice in Chains because back in the early 90s, every band in Seattle played at the same place and rehearsed at the same place and it was called NAF Productions in West Seattle just right over the bridge over here. Everybody it was kind of like a close-knit community. Everybody knew everybody else. Like for instance, one day I'd come in I'd look over to my left and a rehearsal door would be open and there would be Courtney Love with her band, you know, Hole, practicing. Next door, Alice in Chains is practicing. We're shooting a video for one of our first uh, songs from our first album. Chris Cornell walks in and helps himself to a, you know, a beer and just is checking it out. So everybody was kind of around, you know, and everybody just kind of knew everyone. So it wasn't kind of like... Uh, you know, you're having a rock star moment seeing these guys. They were all just there hanging. So uh, back when we first started rehearsing there in 91, a lot of these bands had already been successful, like uh, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden was kind of getting there at that time. So in a way, it kind of, I could see them kind of growing as, as a band. It was really cool. And you'd hear them rehearsing new songs. And it was a really, really cool thing to be a part of. It's, it's cool that you look back at it like that like that it was a cool thing because i think a lot of people in the metal scene looked at it as a very negative thing you know because they didn't have crazy solos or i thought it was awesome song oriented stuff and moody music like i thought it was awesome absolutely it was a it was a fun part you know i mean it did get a little bit out of control for a while i mean you remember the whole way that they dressed back then right they had like (laughs) the uh the long on it was what a flannel shirt it was like long underwear and then like jean shorts over the long underwear with a pair of combat boots right so you'd go to like downtown to do some Christmas shopping and you'd look in a window of like Macy's and there'd be a mannequin dressed in that. You could actually buy like the whole grunge outfit, you know? <laughs> so that's when it was officially out of control. That's when it got a, a little bit too far. Yeah. When you were in line at the supermarket and saw a Vogue magazine and some supermodel is dressed like she's from Seattle. Yeah. That's, that's when you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Time to move on. <laughs> yeah, it was still it was still cool to be a part of all of that. Gosh, you know, just I saw Alice in Chains recently, like last year at a festival and got to watch them from the side of the stage and such a powerful band. Jerry is just such a, a great songwriter and uh, his tone is awesome. He had like ISO cabs in the back. What, his main guitar tech was like, you can just sit on that if you want and watch the show. And I, I could feel the rumble of his guitar just going through my body, you know. He just has a very distinct sound and a very distinct way of songwriting. And he's a really cool guy. If you guys ever get a chance to watch that Gibson uh, Icons thing. I did. It's really, it's really, really good. A, a good watch. Yeah, a really good watch. Kind of gives an inside story of his career and uh, what he's done. So he's, he's a really great guy. He's got a very, very unique and amazing musical identity. And totally, anything he yeah. does just sounds like him, which I think is the coolest 
maybe it's the coolest thing any musician can hope mm -hmm. for is being that having identified. that identity yeah yes totally agree mm -hmm. something that i've always thought separates you from a lot of i guess wannabe virtuosos i don't consider obviously i consider you an actual one but i've noticed i've always noticed that you've been very open to music just any good music You've never struck me as someone that doesn't care if something's not virtuosic. Like you've always been able to judge good writing for good writing and just had good taste in music. I've always felt like uh, the best guitar players tend to be that way. And the I've noticed that a lot of the dudes who wanted to be virtuosic, but all they listened to were shredders and metal mm. and this very, very narrow... Uh, narrow style of music it's like they they didn't have enough influences to really develop an identity i think uh, yeah dude that's uh well thank you for the kind words first off um yeah i i tell you what i think it goes back to my father really you know playing me all sorts of different kinds of music growing up he'd be playing like queen a night at the opera you know, and I hear Brian May's like incredible, you know, harmonies and his guitar tone was so, di so distinctive. And then he'd be playing Van Halen one, and then he'd play a band like Electric Light Orchestra, ELO, uh, wh who's another great band. So I was really just kind of um, sucked into all this different kinds of music when I was a kid. And to this day, you know, everybody always asks me what I listen to, and I'm really open to listening to basically anything that I'm in the mood for, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, after I get home from a tour, the last thing I want to listen to is metal, man. You know, I mean, I'll listen to some classical music. I'll listen to Chopin. I'll listen to uh, something that just moves me. You know, you have to be moved as a musician. You know, you can't, it, it can't always be metal, you know? It really can't, in my, in my eyes anyway. Um, so yeah, I really blame that all on my father. <laughs> he just kind of opened me up to everything and you know, bless his heart, man. It's, he had a good, uh, he had a good soul and he listened to everything. So have you noticed those influences coming out specifically in the stuff you write, or do you think it's more of a subconscious thing? I think it's a subconscious thing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I try to write like technical and stuff like that. And I, you know, I, it's weird too, because it seems like somehow I got lumped into this shreddy lead thing where I've always seen myself more of a composer and just a riff writer. It just so happens that I grew up listening to a lot of the eighties shrapnel guys, you know, like Tony McAlpine and Jason Becker and Marty Friedman and just loved that sound, you know, the whole, the whole technical aspect like that. Um, now it's just kind of like, gosh, everybody's doing that. You know, <laughs> it's just like, um, but there's some players out there that are just so tasteful with the way they do it too. Like, uh, Emil Wurstler, of course, yeah, he's <laughs> one great. of my favorite players. He's just such an amazing player. Um, who else? God, there's, there's so many good players. Wes Houck is kind great. Jason Richardson. Wes Houck is Wes Houck, Jason Richardson. He's a wonderful dude, man. And, uh, he's so tasteful so tasteful in his way of playing and it's like when he plays he has like such control you know he knows exactly where he's going that's one thing i really need to work on is like i man i have absolutely no idea about theory or anything like that or how any of that stuff works i mean i know how scales connect and all that but 
it always seems like he's so confident where he's going next. And I'd like to get to that point, you know, but uh, it's always something to work on, I guess, you know. So if you don't know about theory, is it basically just an instinctual thing? Like this sounds right. This is the right note. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like I relate it more to colors. Like, do you actually see them? Nah, not really. It's just more of a feel and an emotion kind of thing. But at a very young age, when I first started picking up guitar, my dad gave me like this, uh, like mini classical uh, guitar. It's what I first started out on. And I'd be holding it uh, on the couch and just kind of strumming. And there would be a commercial on the television. Uh, you know how they have the little jingles and the little melodies and commercials. And I would I could play it and I could pick up the melody almost instantaneously. And my dad would like turn the TV down and he'd go, how did you do that? You know? So I guess, you know, I was just blessed with having a very good ear. You know what I mean? Like I mm -hmm. could slow down things back then, you know, we'd slow down vinyl. I remember listening to the, the tapping part of eruption by Van Halen and trying to pick that up and doing a fairly good job of it. So yeah, for me, it's all like ear training and being able to pick up things and, um, I usually know a sour note when I hear it, but I, that's why I love like gypsy jazz and jazz styling so much is because you're playing into the, the landing note. You know what I'm saying? You're kind of playing outside and then landing on a, on a root note. That's what I really like is like playing outside the box and then hitting a note that actually fits. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of my, yeah, that's kind of my way of doing things. But, uh, it's all experimental over here, man. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> it's just, that's what makes it fun, I guess, you know. It's interesting to hear you say that because uh, at least with my writing, uh, I did learn theory, but it never, I never used it with writing ever. Like it, writing was always just, this is how this is supposed to feel and this is how it's supposed to sound. And then when communicating it to other people, maybe theory would come around or when adding other instruments or something, but uh, it never actually played a role in the writing process. It was more like what you're describing. That's good to know then, you know, I mean, I have taken lessons on it and stuff like that, but it's always seemed to just always go right over my head. And I don't know, man, I, I tried, I really gave it my best shot at it, but uh, I think I know enough around the neck where I can get to things that I like. And um, I'm one of those kind of guys too, that, you know, back in the Nevermore days, I would, Andy Sneep uh, would always really try to get an improvised solo out of me. He's like, let's turn the lights down. Let's hit the record button and see where this takes us just for fun, you know? And that was really cool because back then I was kind of working out half the solo and kind of improvising half of it. And when you combine both of those things together, you can get a really aggressive approach to lead guitar playing, in my opinion. And uh, he was really good with me at that. And, um, that's one thing that I like to mess around with back in the day. Now, like, for instance, like the Conquering Dystopia stuff, Keith's rhythms are like so ever-changing in key that I really had to sit down and work those solos out. You know, that that was like time-consuming and making sure I had things pr precision-wise up to par. So a lot of difference there with Nevermore and Conquering Dystopia, you know. It's like Nevermore was kind of more improv and Conquering is like more worked out. With Arch Enemy, it's like, I just have like a lot of fun with it. Michael gives me like an idea of where to go and uh, pretty much gives me my freedom with the solos there. So all really three different bands and ideals there. So it's it makes it fun and interesting. Three completely different approaches. Yes, yes, for sure. You know, Andy once mm -hmm. told me that uh, on one of those records you did with him, you finished all the rhythms in four days, quads. 
Yeah. That's insane. Thanks. Uh, well, you know, I think a lot of that comes from back in the early days of my guitar playing, I had a Tascam 4-track. So I was always making little compositions on my own and always trying to double myself with little rhythms that I would come up with. So I think that that kind of derives from that era of just practicing doubling my playing so hard and making sure that I was extremely precise. And we all know how precise Andy is, you know, he's like, the, he's like, you know, that's got to be better, you know? So he's always striving for that next level of tightness. And uh, it's precise, but he actually makes you play it. He does. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't do the note by note stuff. Exactly, dude. He really does. You put your work in and you do the, it's all sweat equity, you know? So he, he definitely makes you, uh, makes you do your job. And uh, we're still great friends to this day and we always chat. So it's, uh, he's a wonderful dude. He's taught me a lot about my guitar playing. He's a God. He is a, freaking god yeah it's ridiculous really cool. and i'm so happy for him that he's got you know the position in judas priest you know it's uh, so cool um you know he he obviously loves being a producer but you know in his heart i think he loves being on stage too you know that's where he first started and i don't think he loves producing as much as he did i think that he has a very particular taste in music and he's mm -hmm. never liked producing stuff outside of that taste and i think he got to the point where he didn't have to anymore and then he got these awesome opportunities as a guitar player. So why not? Good for him, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He's kind of in a really cool place right now in his life. You know, he can kind of pick the things he wants to do rather than having things flown at him. You know, he's like, oh, I'll do that, I guess. And then I'll go on tour. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the dream. It is, right? Yeah. And his studio is so cool, too. Uh, we had a lot of fun there. Yeah, we spent a lot of, a lot of time there. I just remember when we were there, like in... Oh, geez, let's see, 2005, doing the um, uh, Godless Endeavor album, how expensive it was. You know, we hardly had any money as a band. And at that time, groceries were really expensive there. So I had to have uh, my girl send over a box of food for all of us. We had like three boxes of, of noodles and, you know, all this food that we could eat. So, yeah, we were very fortunate. Going over there for tour was brutalizing. I know yeah. we, we had like a budget worked out for that entire album and we blew through it like in like, I swear, like four days or something like that. So we were literally like, Andy's like, what the fuck are you going to do then? <laughs> <laughs> so I have, have like had some food sent out, you know, it took three days to get there, but yeah, we were okay. So was that your first time working with, with a taskmaster of a producer? See, this is the deal with Nevermore. We first started working with Andy in 2000. 1999. But that, that's what I mean, though. Was Andy like the first task, like serious Taskmaster type you'd worked with? No, no. It was uh, Neil Kernan. Oh, okay. Neil Kernan was our first producer we had that really was like, you know, I remember doing like pre-productions with him before albums. That's kind of unheard of now, right? No, no. Pe no people do that now. People do that now. They still do? Okay. Yeah? Yeah. It, it's almost like it's kind of been a past tense kind of thing, in my opinion. But I thought it was so much fun doing that back in the day when you made an album. You know, the producer would fly in for a week. You'd work on chopping up songs and arrangements and all that stuff. Now it's more like done over an email or something like that. Yeah, I don't like this and that. And well, so I've had a lot of, a lot of dudes on the URM podcast uh, over the past year who make pre-pro a priority. They think it's the most important part of the process. Like, cause if you fuck that up, what are you even doing? So I've had quite a few people who actually do it, but the thing is they don't fly to the studio to do it. 
like they did in the old days. They'll do it at their own studio, just at the start of the session. Okay, that makes sense. Getting back to, well, Neil Kernan was one of the first producers we worked with who'd come in and he'd, you know, sit down with us and kind of tell us, you know, okay, let's do that part a bit longer. And in 2000, that was when uh, Nevermore first started using seven strings. It's like, I wanted to go for a a different kind of approach. You know, I first started hearing Meshuga back then and it's like, wow, that sounds amazing. So we, um, we just kind of like experimented with seven string guitars and were lucky enough to meet Andy Sneap. I actually had heard an album he did by a band called Stuck Mojo. And I was like, God, this sounds so good. You know, you could hear everything so crystal clear. And so I contacted Century Media and I'm like, who is this guy, Andy Sneap? And they gave me his phone number and he agreed to do the album and he flew out to Seattle and we ended up recording the uh, album at uh, Sonic Ranch Studios in Texas. Man, that place is nuts. Isn't it nuts? Yeah, we did uh, We did like three or four albums there with Neil Kernan before and Andy Sneap came out there and uh, uh, in 2000 and... Uh, Al Jorgensen was living there for a while on the compound. It was real odd, you know. It's like <laughs> for people listening, if you don't know what Sonic Ranch is, look it up. It's a this crazy studio on the border of Texas and Mexico. Almost feels like no man's land on a uh, what is it peanuts that they grow there? No. To make a long story short, I'll kind of tell you a little inside story about this place. Sonic Ranch Studios is basically in Torneo, Texas. And it's kind of like a little suburb of El Paso, basically. And it's right on the Rio Grande. So it's literally divided by the Rio Grande in Mexico. And um, it's a pecan ranch. Oh, yeah. Okay. And Tony, Tony Rancic, the owner of the place, uh, for generations and generations, he's been watching over this pecan farm that's belonged to his family. And he's made quite an occupation out of it and he's a musician at heart and opened up the studio called sonic ranch and it's just an incredible place it's a it's a house slash studio it's basically where the whole band can stay right he has like a lovely staff working there that does all your laundry they do all the cooking and stuff like this you have your own separate bedroom so it's always fun like on laundry day when you get your bass player's underwear on your bed you know <laughs> that kind of vibe dude it was a lot of great memories man it was so much fun recording there and uh tony would actually jog on the compound every morning and this one time he told me that he found a huge bin of marijuana like a huge like people are trying to bring drugs over the border and it just pops out of the back of their truck so he just like has this big brick of marijuana <laughs> marijuana and basically just calls the police hey i found this and they just come and pick it up and confiscate it you know so that is an absolutely crazy story that sounds dangerous yeah, you know, I mean, he's literally that close to that type of stuff going on there and that behavior. So <laughs> I'm like, damn, Tony, be careful, you know. But so many great memories of that place. Um, I think we ended up doing four albums there or something like that. Yeah, it was always a lot of fun. So do you prefer working with a producer that's intense like that or the more laid back type? I like the intensity kind of thing, you know. Like, bring it on. Let's see what you can do. I'm not saying that Andy was intense like that. He was, he was like, he was just always willing to try new things. And he's like, try this, try that. And he's just like, you can do better. And he was, he was always pushing. He's got super high standards. He does, man. And that's what makes it intense, I guess. But uh, for me, it was always fun because I'm always up for a challenge like that. And um, 
he always made made it challenging. Yeah, I'm not surprised that that's what you're saying. I've just have seen musicians crumble under the pressure of working with that type of person. Dude, I know, I know, right? And uh, I've heard stories as well. I mean, when you're under the microscope like that and things got to be so precise, it's like, it's such a different environment for some musicians that they just don't understand it. And um, I think a lot of people really learn from that. That's, I guess it's just always something I was always prepared for because like I said earlier, I was always recording myself, making little compositions on my four track, trying to get those things tight. And that's, I guess it was to my benefit that I did that, you know, it helped me out a lot. Man, one thing that we always say, Brown says it all the time, I've said it all the time, is one of the best things you can do for your guitar playing is record yourself. Totally. I'm constantly doing it, man. I'm constantly using my iPhone, <laughs> you know, just to, like little riffs, trying to harmonize things, tighten things up, just writing little compositions. I'm always recording myself, man. I've got hundreds of ideas everywhere. So great idea to do that. It's great to have a focused mind nowadays and just be level-headed and uh, just be completely focused. That's where I'm at right now and it feels good. So, okay. So when you say focused, what does that mean for you? Is it like a scheduled out type of thing, like every day from this hour to this hour, do this? Etc. Or is it just you know what you're working on and you clear mind and you just work on it? Yeah, I just that that's exactly it. The second thing you just said, I have a clear mind. I just go in and do my thing and uh, and and do it. You know, I'm spending a lot of extra time on my solo album right now because obviously I want it to be really good. It's my last album with Century Media. I have the downtime to do it now, so uh, everybody's asking about it. You know, what when when is it going to be out? I've told them two years ago, three years ago, but. Like I said, Arch Enemy is such a busy thing for me. So now is the time that I'm actually working, writing and recording it. I'm hoping for a later release this year. So that's the, the tentative plan. You know what I've noticed with this whole quarantine pandemic thing is there's one group of people who, uh, and I'm talking in the community of employed musicians. Uh, there's been one group of people who have acted like it's the worst thing ever, like doom and gloom. And then another group mm -hmm. of people who are like, okay, this is my chance to do X. Like, this is the chance to finally get that solo record done, whatever. And all going through the exact same thing. Everybody can't tour, et cetera. Um, but having vastly different experiences with it because of what they're choosing to do at the time. Yeah, I guess everybody has a different, a different vibe about it. God, there's some people that I talk to that are just like, I'm not inspired at all right now during this dark time. I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, everybody's different. Yep. To me, it's just having the downtime right now is just, it just makes sense, you know? I'm the kind of person where it's like, I can't have anything else around me while I'm doing something either. I'm not very good at multitasking. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't do five or six projects at a time like some people can. I can't so, either. Yeah, it's like kind of like brush everything aside and I'm going to focus on this one thing and stay straight on the path and... uh that's what I've been doing and it works out for me. I mean, there's a little, a few things here and there that I do like guest solos and things like that, you know, to make a little extra cash on the side. That's always fun. And then the video game thing, just kind of getting into that, getting a foot in the door with that. So, but really right now it's just 110% my, my solo album. So that's what I'm doing. So out of curiosity, cause you were talking about right hand and I remember the first time that I got introduced to your playing was at a show uh, when you were on tour with In Flames uh, in like 2003 or something or four. Yep, that sounds about right. Yeah. Shadows Fall, In Flames, uh, you guys. I had never heard of you guys before. So 
I actually didn't listen to any of the bands on the tour. It was just going to a show. And uh, I was blown away by the guitar playing in your band. Thank you. And I thought the leads were great, but what actually really caught my attention was how sick the riffs were and how tight they were. So besides the doubling yourself on your recordings, is rhythm something that you actually worked on, worked on the way you would work on leads? Oh, absolutely. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I actually spent a lot more time on rhythm, rhythm stuff, you know, um, I like, like I said before earlier, it's like somehow I got lumped into that lead playing thing. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I Maybe think it was just, really sick um, solos. May, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that for instance, like the song, like river dragon, it's like, I don't know if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. song. That seems to be a favorite of a lot of like nevermore fans is, uh, just a crushing, like, like concrete wall of rhythm, um, that, you know, was quad tracked in the studio. And then, uh, just coming up with that, uh, the, the, the rhythms for the, the solo rhythm, which is just like a dunce, 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 I was like, okay, I've got all this space, you know, it's got a good groove going. I need to fill that with something somehow where it's going to be kind of almost robotic in a sense, but at the same time, very melodic, but dark and sinister at the same time. So I just started messing around with little things to go over that. But um, that's how that kind of was born. But uh, really, it's like, I've always had so much more fun coming up with rhythms and being tight on things like that than the solo aspect, you know? It's just somehow along the line, I got kind of lumped into the solo thing. And then I remember back when the solo started flying out live, people would start holding like signs up, you know, Loomis do that, do this, you know, they always wanted to hear some kind of weird solo thing from me. And Worrell didn't really like that. You know, he's like, what's going on with this, these solos and why are people like cheering? You know, he didn't get that, you know, it just kind of happened. So that wasn't your goal. You weren't like, your goal wasn't like, I'm going to be the best guitar player in the world kind of thing. Hell no. All I wanted to do was just be a good rhythm player and write good, solid metal songs. You know, the whole lead thing I never thought about or wanting to be the next Ingve Malmsteen or anything like that, that never crossed my mind. Um, but I guess uh, those influences kind of brushed off in me and I was writing solos like that, I guess, for a lot of the music. And then it just kind of happened. It kind of just placed itself. Solos are just kind of, it sounds to me like just part of the arsenal almost like yeah. part of the musical language. Like you play this style of music. So have to have blazing solos, but not as the focus. That's absolutely correct. Yep. Sometimes I get lumped into it too hard too. Sounds know? like it bothers oh, we'll you. We'll just have Loomis do the solos, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. I want to write riffs and uh, you know, riffing is, that's really what, what it's all about anyway, is the riff, right? It's about, it's about riffing hard guys. It is. <laughs> yes, it really is. I think the whole lead thing is really secondary to me in my eyes. You know, it's just like kind of like the sprinkles or the icing on a cake or something like that. You know, it's uh, it, I remember for a while, wasn't there a while in metal too, where like solos became non-existent for like four years or something? Yeah. Like, everybody kind of forgot about the guitar solo, but I always still love the guitar solo in a song. I think it's all awesome, you know? Nothing wrong with it in my eyes. So you don't have anything against it. It's just... No, no, no. But it sounds like your priority is the actual music you're playing. Absolutely. It always has been, yeah. For the new album, you know, that I'm doing, I'm going to focus a lot more on rhythmical approach 
and kind of do the lead thing a little bit more melodic this time, you know, uh, my first two solo albums, it was kind of like just full throttle, you know, but I really want to keep this one more melodic, you know, and uh, really focused on the rhythms and just kind of having rememberable lead lines and melodies more so than some fast solo or something like that. So that's kind of the approach I'm looking at now for my, for my third solo album. Maybe that's why it's taking so much more time too, is I really want to make sure that that's, uh, that's what's put out there, you know? You know, and I don't think that it's an accident that Satriani and Vi are like the kings of that era. Mm -hmm. I think there's a definite link between the fact that they knew when to, when to hang on the melody, when to just play badass rhythms and try to actually write cool music, as opposed to lots of dudes who they just got sucked into the flashy side of it. There's a definite reason for why we're talking about Vi and Cetriani. And I think it is because they have the right musical priorities. Absolutely. Definitely agree with you there. Some of my favorites too, growing up with the shrapnel guys and stuff was uh, definitely Marty Friedman. He has a very peculiar approach you know to his bending and, and picking his note choice and his picking is so cool and uh i you know i'm very fortunate to call him a friend too because he uh i played a solo on one of his older solo albums and got a chance to spend some t- studio time with him one day and he's so precise in what in what he wants he can almost hear everything before he even puts it on tape he just he's that He's that genius, I think, you know, he's a really great player in my eyes and uh, I've always looked up to him. He's a great player. Uh, It's really hard to describe, but he's got such a unique sense of melody in everything he does that you almost don't realize that he's playing something that's blindingly fast because it's so well written. It's so melodic. It's so well phrased that you don't realize it, which I think is the best kind of the best kind of solo. It's just a good piece of music. It really is. It really is. Uh, You know, getting back to what I was saying earlier about kind of like playing outside the box and landing on that root note uh, at the end of a phrase, he's so good at that. You know, he's like, just like messing around with that, that target note, if you will. And then he just lands on it. And that's like, wow, what he did to reach to that point is just so beyond me. And uh, it's almost like he just hears all that stuff and then just, it just comes out of him, you know? But uh, as far as like huge influences growing up, it, I definitely like Brian May from Queen, Eddie Van Halen, just for his tone and his way of playing. Those are two, two huge, huge things. And of course, Mr. Malmsteen, he, he was a huge influence on me, not so much anymore, really, but more like in the old days when he was in the band Alcatraz, uh, he was just phenomenal. And uh, it's so funny, I got a chance to see him in the 80s play live i believe it was 87 on the trilogy tour or something like that and it was just so effortless when he was playing on stage it's like he wasn't even looking at his he was just you know like it was unbelievable when he played his unaccompanied solo uh there was a gentleman in front of me at the concert crying oh my god i can't believe what i'm you know it was that phenomenal back then it was just like you look at your arm and all your hairs were raising, but now it's like, I don't know. It's his technique is not to talk down on Ingve or anything, but his technique just doesn't seem like it's there. Like as it used to be, you know, in my, to my ears, like his picking was never the same after that automobile crash he had, uh, in the late eighties, I believe it was like 88 that that happened or right, right after that crash tour, I saw Ferrari, him. Ferrari, right? 
wrapped it around a telephone pole or a jaguar or something like that yeah he wrapped it around a telephone pole and he was like unconscious for i think he was in a coma for like a week or something like that and uh you can kind of tell on his next album that it's his playing is just not you know the the same that something was missing or something a definite influence on my playing as well so so uh, what kind of stuff is like say that someone wants to get better at rhythm uh what are the kinds of things that you would uh focus on like what did you focus on when you wanted to get better at rhythm listening to a lot of james hetfield you know looking at that looking at that right hand and uh examining like things that he would do there's two different ways that i approach picking and i I see this in john's playing as well as like when i'm playing rhythms i'm using a lot more of my whole arm you know really getting into it but when you're playing more intricate stuff, if you're playing intricate rhythms, I tend to use more of my wrist, you know, and kind of, you know, put my hand on the, or put my arm on the body and just rest it there. And I find that when I want to play faster stuff, it's really wrist movement, not my whole entire arm, you know? So I guess everybody has their own different way of looking at it. But for me personally, it was just working on down picking, you know, uh, John, I remember that video you did at the Metallica thing with the, from Master. And we were just examining the down picking and that whole thing. I mean, dude, how in the hell can somebody do that like him? That's phenomenal. You know, it's like James to me is the king and still the king and always will be the king of, of rhythms. So if you ever want to focus on rhythms, listen to him, watch him play, watch that right arm and that hand and how he's doing things. And that's a good example of uh, where to go or where to start at least, you know, I got to see Metallica on the Ride the Lightning Tour with Cliff Burton. Holy shit. At a small club in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was Armored Saint, Metallica, and Wasp headlining. And dude, Metallica came out with the intro to um, Fight Fire with Fire with the acoustic intro, just cranked through the PA. I remember my my arms were just, I was looking at the hair in my arms, just standing up, man. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be insane. They both come out with their flying Vs, and you know the cymbal chokes on Fight Fire with Fire? Dun, dun, dun. They were all so wasted on stage, they fucked that whole thing up. <laughs> they were like all off on it. But dude, once they got together and found out where they were and that song kicked in, it was like I got mowed over by a semi truck. It was the most insane live show and sound I've ever seen. It's like, I guess when you're younger, your hearing is a lot better, of course. Uh, us musicians know that we have hearing problems as we tend to get older. But my God, it was so loud and so incredibly awesome. It was the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And just Cliff Burton up there is a memory that I'll hold on to forever. And um, that's what really made me get into like rhythm and just like the the, the ferociousness of it all, you know, is, uh, is James Hetfield. Bless that guy, man. You know, uh, one thing I've noticed about bands that do huge things, and this might sound obvious, whenever I've seen them before they get really big or when they're just starting to, they have an energy about them that's just different than the other bands who might also be successful. They might be signed. They might be touring. You can tell that these bands are going to go on to do something. Like I remember seeing Opeth early in their career and just being like, holy shit, this band is incredible. I'm sure Metallica was like that. Absolutely. I mean, it's almost like, gosh, man, I'm trying to explain it in a better way, but you could just tell that they had such drive, you know, like everybody in the band 
was on the same page. And you can tell when you see a live band where there's one person in the band that's just not quite into it as the others. You can kind of see that visually, but everybody in Metallica that particular day, and I believe, what was it, 86 that I saw that tour? Or is it 85? 85 or 86, I don't remember. Um, everybody was on the same page and everybody was just like dialed in, man. And uh, it was incredibly awesome. Incredibly awesome. What a memory, you know? I wish I could go back to those days <laughs> and revisit them again, you know? Um, but uh, even seeing like live videos of them from back in the day, from that particular tour is just so much fun to watch, you know? I think there's one that they recorded. Where was that one? It was on the Master of Puppets tour. This is an incredible live show, I think in Holland or something like that. That's just so much fun to watch. I don't know. I, I always go back and revisit that stuff, you know? Because really that's my roots, you know, Metallica, Iron Maiden. I grew up with all that stuff, of course. So You know what's interesting about Metallica and James Hetfield is that you know how in lots of ways, I guess the bass level for guitar playing skill level has risen. It's not that there weren't amazing players back then. There were, but there's just a lot more amazing players now. They're all over the place. I mean, truly great players are still rare, but still the median level is way higher. However, that said, James Hetfield's rhythm playing still hasn't been beat. It's kind of amazing. It's not really the technicality, like 100% of that either. It's really the compositions too, isn't it? I mean, the way he writes is so genius. And, you know, a lot of people give Lars shit, but take him out of the equation of Metallica. It would not be Metallica. He has extremely unique beats that James has even said that he's like hummed to him in his head, you know, where he's kind of, you know, just playing off in a way, but it just works, you know, it just, he's a huge part of that band. He's a huge part of the arrangements. I don't know. He makes Metallica Metallica. You know, when I've seen people cover them, like with like really skilled drummers, like the drummers that we would think are fucking awesome. Yeah. When they play Metallica songs and then they start adding double bass and like crazy fills and all that stuff, it just doesn't work. People think Lars is a bad drummer, but when you hear Metallica with a quote unquote good drummer, it doesn't make sense. No, never has in my opinion either. It's, it's just, he's all a part of that big sound, you know? Definitely an interesting drummer, though. You know, he, I guess he plays to his own beat. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> you know, he's, uh, he's Froze. unique. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, fun to watch, you know. He's very animated when he plays, which is cool. I started playing drums, actually, even before guitar. My father bought me a three-piece drum kit, you know, when I was about uh, 10 or 11. It was like this huge, like, Ludwig jazz kit with a huge bass drum and it smelled funny because it was so old you know i just remember that and uh just play along to music with a pair of headphones on and uh that gave me a very good sense of rhythm and timing you know and then my dad wanted me to start take lessons and i was just like uh i was too shy you know i was very like very introverted when i was a kid and uh very shy, timid. <laughs> so he's like, why don't you try guitar then? You know, and he had a guitar laying around and uh, picked that up. And it just seemed like I could be more expressive on guitar. Like it was meant for me. And that's kind of how that happened. But I started on drums, actually. 
That makes sense. Now, hearing that you started on drums, uh, your rhythm playing makes a lot of sense. I think everybody, <laughs> every musician should yeah. uh, should learn drums at least a little bit. A little bit, yeah. You know, learn learn yourself an ACDC beat, you know, and get on grooving. <laughs> so it's like generally like two or three hours into the day. Is that when you'll start with the music? Yes, yeah. Get up, you know, have my coffee. I've been a little bit too much into the news lately, CNN and all that, you know. It's kind of hard not to be. It's kind of hard not to be, you know, at this time in the world. Tomorrow is going to be absolutely nuts. I, I hope everything goes smoothly for the inauguration. Um, yeah, it's tomorrow. It is tomorrow, yes. Yeah. But, um, you know, like you said, you know, it's 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 uh, hard not to watch the news now. But I'll check that out a little bit. Get down here, do a little warming up, and then just start getting creative and uh, you know time flies by pretty quickly so i'll get as much as i can done in one day and just repeat the process you know to me it's just all about having fun with it right now and just having the time to do it being at home right now is a a real blessing for me i'm just enjoying every minute of it trying out new things trying out new amps got a marshall here that i want to try uh, the new evh head so i get all kind of techy too i like I like trying out new things. Got a, gr a great thing going on with Jackson right now. I joined their family about uh, two years ago. I'm very fortunate to be with them and have a couple of... Uh, I have a new seven string that will be coming out very soon. Nice. I was with Schechter for a very, very long time. Like, I'm going to say 12, 14 years or something. And it got to the point where I just... I didn't know what else I could do with them anymore. You know, I had one guitar with them that was a very good seller. And... Uh, Initially, I was just going to leave the company and just be kind of a free agent and not have any more guitar endorsements because I'm kind of an avid collector. I love to have guitars around all sorts of different kinds. And uh, I just wanted to have the freedom to play whatever I wanted, you know, a Les Paul or a Strat or whatever. But then I got the opportunity to visit um, the Fender factory in uh, Corona, California. And that's, of course, where they make Fenders and Charbels and Jacksons and Gretsch guitars. And it was uh, a no-brainer, you know, when they asked me if I wanted to join the family and have my own signature guitar, because I started playing Jackson in my early days when I was like 14 or 15. Never in my life thought I would have a, an opportunity like that. So when it came up, I was like, let's do this, you know, and uh, I'm very happy there. Very, very cool to be a part of the the Jackson roster and um, the legendary Mike Shannon, who built used to build guitars for you know like Randy Rhodes and stuff like that. He's a good friend of mine now and an absolute legend. So it's wonderful to work with him. Yeah, so I'm in a good place with guitars. Yeah, for for people listening, if you don't understand how endorsements work, the main thing, long story short, is when you endorse a company uh, and they give you guitars, you're not allowed to play other company's guitars on stage or appear in photos or videos with mm -hmm. them which is a totally fair deal in my opinion right fortunately with uh with jackson you know i can play charvel i can play strats you know i can play those guitars which i have quite a bit of and um that's kind of cool where you're able to be open and play things like that but i still buy other brands of guitars so you could do an arch enemy tour with a strat I could, <laughs> I could, sir. Yes. <laughs> right. Big old scallop fretboard with, you know, playing metal. I love using strats. Actually. I play, I record a lot of solos and clean things with strats. They just, I love the sound of a single coil. It sounds so awesome. Just sounds like it just rips through a mix, you know, like it just has that 
bell-like tone, you know. But yeah, very fortunate to be able to use Fender Charvel Jackson. Uh, I've got a few Les Pauls kicking around too that I like to break out every now and then. I've been into acoustics a lot lately. I just bought a nice Guild uh, 12 string, absolutely gorgeous guitar. And I have a Martin D45 uh, as well. So I love throwing a microphone on that and just turning the lights down and creating some kind of ambience and, you know, coming up with some cool melodies like that as well. I try to make it fun for myself and, you know, just have, have a good time with it. Are you the type of player who uh, tries to find the right guitar for every part? Sometimes. I mean, most of the times I'll just stick with my standard Jackson, like my Kelly or my seven string that I have and, uh, just stick with that. But yeah, for definite things that are needed, like a certain clean tone or something like that, or a certain lead tone I'm looking for, I'll usually, you know, check out a few strats or something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll hunt for, for things like that in tone search. It makes it fun, you know? So yeah, I've, I've been known to do that. I think that that's one of the coolest parts of recording guitars is using multiple guitars. Hell yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, it just makes shit more fun. Absolutely, yeah. I, I don't think that everything needs to be fun in order, like, it's work. Like, so it can't work, can't mm -hmm. always be fun. And we're fortunate if we get to work in a field that we don't hate. But the more fun it is, the harder you'll work. There is actually a good reason for making it fun, which is you'll do more. You'll stick it out through hard times if it's fun. So uh, I back the making it fun part. Mm -hmm. Very, very well said, dude. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. But, you know, I love guitar pedals. You know, I'm just, I, I'm addicted, I guess, to all the, uh, you know, the fun stuff that goes with it. I'm really like, for a while there, I was like really super into buying like older gear. Uh, I just found an ADA MP1 preamp. Yeah, that's, that's fun. I actually act, had a friend send me one. And uh, he said I could just keep it. So I've got that in my arsenal. I've got the old Tom Scholl's uh, rock modules from back in the day. You know, the Boston guy. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The old uh, distortion generator and the compressor and the chorus. So those are like nice little reverb finds. So you weren't kidding about old gear. No, no. I like messing around with stuff like that and just finding things. Uh, I've also got a couple of old Rocktron preamps that I have been messing around with. I have the uh, the Rocktron Max. Akira Takasaki was known for using that back in the 80s with his band Loudness, and he always had a really exceptional, cool guitar tone. So I wanted to mess around with that, and I found one on Reverb. What else was I going to say? The A lot of people ask about the guitar tone on, on Dead Heart, and uh, an Andy Sneap guitar tone, but we ended up using a one of those Mesa Boogie Rectifiers, and I found one of those on eBay. I remember those. Yeah, and so I bought one of those, and I was lucky enough to know a guy at Mesa Boogie who I was able to send it to, and they kind of refurbished it for me, put on some new knobs and new switches, retubed it, and so I'm lucky enough to have one of those right now um, with the actual old green Maxon pedal I used. So... You know, I, I just thought it was important to have that in my arsenal because that's a tone that people always really have loved. And uh, I wanted to have it for myself, you know, so I'm just like, I have it. If I need it, I can hook that up and get that tone again, you know. I'm weird like that, man. I can't help it. <laughs> you know how people say tone is in the hands? There's a lot of truth to that. Like if mm -hmm. someone plugged into that rig, they wouldn't sound like you. Only you sound like you. But still, 
choosing the right gear is very important that you wouldn't get that tone without that gear either on that song. Absolutely. What's the ratio there for you? Like hands versus gear. Dude, it's weird that you say that because I just saw a video recently of, it's an older video that just resurfaced of Eddie Van Halen visiting Jason Becker's house. Did you guys happen to see that video? I saw that the video exists. I did not watch it. Should I? It's very emotional because he was there during the time that Jason was uh, well into his disease that he has called ALS. He was there to kind of make the disease more aware and to kind of raise money uh, for it, I believe. And he was also there just to kind of meet Jason and to play a little guitar for him. And so he took Jason's guitar uh, with a little practice amp that he had and proceeded to play on the couch, Eddie Van Halen. And I couldn't believe it. You know, it's just like, it really is true. When a guitar is put into the hands of uh, a genius, it really does sound like them. It's incredible. And I really was like, my God, that is so, that is so true. The tone is in the hands. It's unreal. <laughs> Man, I remember once, just to, just to piggyback what you're saying, in the 90s, back when Ingve did that orchestral record with my dad, I remember going on Ingve's bus at some point, and he had like a little, like a pig nose amp. Yeah. And he was just warming up, and he sounded exactly like himself there you go right there was no marshall stack on the bus are you talking about that thing that he did with the the japanese like philharmonic or something that dvd or was this something else that was a live performance my dad conducted the oh. actual recording of it okay because i remember you telling me your dad was a like a composer and a conductor or something like that not a composer just a conductor just a conductor okay yeah uh, wow that's really cool stick waver yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so so he definitely you could hear his tone just coming through that pig nose, just a little amp like that. It's that's that's incredible. Hundred percent. The same thing with the Eddie Van Halen video I saw of him visiting with Jason. And it was like, oh my God, that's just his little taps that he does on the not the actual, you know, eruption finger tapping, but the harmonic taps that he'll get. It's just wow. It's just his colors and his a palette set up for him to do his whole thing, you know. It was incredible. But uh, the ratio, as far as that goes, as far as I'm concerned with my, I think it's with every player, really. You just have your own identity and the way you approach things. And it's every little idiosyncrasy, isn't it? It's just the way you have your hands placed. It's the way that your hand rests on the strings. It's uh, so many little things that make it yours. And uh, I'm a firm believer that the tone really comes from the hands. Yeah. It's almost like the tone is the house and the furniture uh -huh. and decoration is the playing. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> two, two completely different people would take the same house and decorate it completely different. The great analogy. <laughs> yeah. I think that one works for me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, man. Well, just because tone is not 100% in the hands. That's the thing. It's not 100% in the hands. There's a reason for why you got that rig. There's a reason for why you fuck around with gear. There's a reason for why lots of musicians and producers fuck around with gears because the gear does do something. But what I think is that people who are still, I mean, everybody's still learning, but like people who are beginners or intermediate level, not yet pro, uh, who just are earlier in their journeys, don't understand that the priority should be 
you're playing at all times. Oh, that's, yeah, yes. that's the, yeah. that's the common denominator with every piece of gear that you touch, um, is your, your ear and your hands. Um, that needs to always be the priority, but the gear does matter. It, it really does, you know, and, you know, kind of going back to some of what you're saying, one thing that's really strange to me nowadays is how good uh, a lot of these players are becoming so quickly just because they have all of these vehicles, you know, to look upon, you know, like YouTube videos and lessons like that. However, I don't know if you'll, you'll agree with me on this. It seems like these kids are technically really well, but it just seems like something is missing coming from here. You know what I'm saying? It's like technically overall, they're playing so many nice things, but it almost seems like they're becoming too good too quickly or something. I don't know. It's like they're missing something along the way with feel and emotion. You know, I remember back in the day playing, I would just put in hours and hours and hours of time just uh, reflecting on certain little idiosyncrasies and, and things like that. But really, I spent a lot of time with the way a piece of music made me feel, you know, the emotion and the heart of it all. And that's something that's so important that I think every musician somehow has to try to find within themselves is is that you know to really make somebody else move in a certain sort of way you know that feeling you get when you hear something that absolutely just makes you feel incredible another thing i've really learned you know in the past as far as tone goes is i used to go way way overboard with gain and just you know <laughs> just an insane amount of gain. Didn't we all? And if you really analyze Ingve Malmsteen's tone, you know, with him playing through like a plexi kind of Marshall, which is very glassy and clean sounding without uh, without an overdrive in front of it, his his tone with the gain on is extremely distorted, like really distorted. Because I got a chance to see him sound check one time, and uh, he just has it all very controlled, you know. But he's basically got that. DOD overdrive or whatever he's using in front just cranked all the way with a noise gate and a lot of reverb, but he's got, that's why it sounds so glassy and cool. You know, it's just, he's got a lot of gain, but Andy Sneap really taught me, you know, less is more when it comes to gain and overdrive. It's almost like, it's almost like you have one gain setting that's perfect. And then you set another one a little bit less. So you have to work for it even more with your right hand. You know what I mean? To get that really, that combo of like when you're quad tracking or something like that, I find it to be a little bit more hard work, but in the end, you're going to end up with a better overdriven sound, in my opinion. So you know what you were saying before about younger players missing something? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what I think that is, is you're right. Their skill exceeds their maturity. So they get they get really, really good because they can watch YouTube videos or, you know, sign up to Riff Hard. And like, basically they have these advantages that we didn't have. We didn't have YouTube. We couldn't watch the best players in the world and like soak that in and mimic it. And so, you know, people adapt and uh, they're smart and they're able to mimic other people very, very well. And so they develop these technical skills, but they're still kids. They're not... Uh, their musical maturity isn't there yet. So I don't think that it's something that's necessarily missing from people. I just think that uh, they just haven't gotten there. They yet. just haven't gotten there yet, <laughs> but their skill, that's yeah. what I meant that the median skill level has risen. Like 
their skills are developing faster than the emotional maturity, but that'll happen with life. You're exactly right. It's kind of like you're blazing through a, a book or a novel and reading the contents of it all, but in the end, you're not really understanding the content. You know what I mean? It's kind of the same way with guitar playing where they're able to play all these riffs and licks, but what did they just do? You know, it's like, there's got to be some certain sort of thing there where they understand the, um, the feeling and the emotion side of it as well. I think that's very, very important, I think. So do you think that maybe musicians should try to connect with what it is that they love about other people's music? Sounds like you found what you loved about other people's music that moved you, and then you wanted to then do that same thing. I mean, not in their style, but like create that feeling in other people. Yeah, I guess to an extent, that's that's pretty close. I mean, I just remember the way music made me feel. You know what I'm saying? It's like that incredible feeling of a rush, uh, that incredible feeling of joy and excitement. And knowing that, you know, for instance, I could write a piece of music for my mom or something, and she can listen to it and, and get something from that, a feeling or something of happiness or joy, that is what makes me happy, is to be able to present that to people and make them feel good, you know? Music is an incredible vehicle, if you will, to make people feel good and give them a sense of uh, encouragement or just the, the incredible feelings you get when you when you listen to something like that. So it's my way of expressing myself, basically, to make a long story short. So when you're writing something, how do you know it's good? By the way, it makes me feel, you know, mm -hmm. it's all feel like it's just, uh, if I get excited about something and I want to immediately send it to my producer friend who I send a lot of my stuff to, to listen to, um, and he gets a, a kick out of it or something then I know I've done something right, you know, but really it, it goes through my body first. And if I feel something from it, then I know it's good, you know? It's just that certain sensory that you have in your brain that flashes on and off going, you did something right. It's here. like the light bulb yeah. turns on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For me, music and language are completely separate. I actually think that lyrics, with few exceptions, kind of dumb down music because it's expressing something that's deeper than words. And so when you attach words to it, it kind of fucks it up for me. The, I'm not saying I don't love songs with vocals or whatever, but I'm just saying that for me, writing, words don't, it's not the same. So whenever there'd be like, well, let's write a song about this word, it'd be like, I don't know, that's not how I, that's not how I think musically. It's gotta be, there's gotta be a feeling and like an atmosphere. This feeling and this atmosphere I'm talking about can't be explained with a word. That's why it needs to be musical. I've been super, super lucky too in that regard with being able to write music under different circumstances. You know what I mean? Like now, of course, I'm by myself and alone down here in my basement. But however, you know, when I was playing in the band Nevermore, working with Worrell, you know, the vocalist, we were like writing partners. So he wrote a song, the lyrics to a song called Insignificance on the first, uh, or on Dead Heart in a Dead World, the first album that we did with Andy Sneap. And his lyrics actually just inspired me to come up with an acoustic riff, you know? So that being said, there was like 
a different, that was a different approach to songwriting for me as well, you know, and we made a really good team doing that, you know? So I've been lucky in that sense to have like different vibes and, and things. And also working with Keith Merrow, you know, like with, on the Conquering Dystopia album. His shit's super dark. It's very dark. And he's got such unique chords and voicings that he uses. And, um, he's a great riff writer. And every weekend I'd take the train from Seattle down to Portland back in like 2012 or 13 and uh, spend the weekend with him. And, uh, you know, he wrote the majority of the core riffs on that album. I came up with a few, I wrote a few on there, uh, but I did all the lead work, but it was just so much fun writing with him too, because as I said earlier, his stuff is ever moving around the, the fingerboard. It's not like, you know, when somebody sends you a guest solo to do and it's just all chugging in E, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, that, that'll be fun. But his stuff is ever moving around in so many different keys. So you have to really pay attention to that. And that made it extremely challenging. So another instance of, of working with somebody that, you know, in a different way, you know, and I've been very fortunate to work with different musicians like that in my career. Sometimes I miss that, to be quite honest. I mean, it's always fun to have something to roll off onto somebody else and say, hey, what do you think of that? You know, that's what makes it a, a tiny bit lonely doing music on your own here in the basement like that. But um, luckily, I have a producer friend that he's going to be doing my next album that I, I roll ideas off of him. And he's like, oh, I like where you're going with that. So he's a good like second set of ears for me personally. Arch Enemy is an interesting band, I think, um, because Yep. Yeah, I was just thinking, we are talking about Keith and how dark his stuff is. Arch Enemy's always been sick, but I've never felt like it's dark. It feels like it's coming from, like, not from, like, a happy place, but, like, not from, like, that dark place that, like, Keith's music or black metal or those things come from. Like, I don't hear darkness in it. I hear sick riffs and great playing and energy, a lot of energy. Yeah. Michael's awesome, man. I go way back with Michael. I've known him since the mid nineties. You know, we met at, met each other at a festival when Arch Enemy was just starting out off basically. Nevermore had already been around for a couple, couple years and we hit it off immediately. We were, we became very good friends and we've stayed in touch all these years. And he's somebody I really look up to because he's brought Arch Enemy from the ground up to what it is today. It's his band. And uh, he is the the founding member of it, and uh, an amazing writer. And uh, I guess I guess you know it's hard to really put a, a technical term on the style of music Arch Enemy is, but I guess people call it melodic death metal. But Michael has that ferociousness of the cool rhythms, but also that beautiful kind of thing, um, the Michael Schenker thing, if you will, mm -hmm. with the beautiful melodies soaring over the top of it, you know? So when I was initially asked, asked to join Arch Enemy about six years ago, it was kind of a no-brainer for me because I really wanted to play live again. I really missed that. And uh, talk about a fun time it's been, man, these last six years with those guys. I was really happy when I heard you got that gig. Thanks, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. You know, I'm, I'm only a, um, you know, I'm a side member of the band. I, I don't do any writing for it. I just do the writing of the solos for me. Michael, Charlie, and Daniel have always been the founding members of Arch Enemy, and it's, that's the core of the band. I tried to write some riffs with Michael, but our styles kind of different differ in that sense. I, I would like to be a part of that, but unfortunately, it's just, you know, it just works better. It kind of just is what it is. It is what it is. And I've, I've taken that as, you know, 
totally cool. That's that's fine with me. I I have just so close with all this, all the people in the band. They're like all my best friends. I get along with them fantastic. It's like an extremely well-oiled machine, man, on tour with those guys. Everything is worked out to the T. I literally just go to sound check. I play the best live show I can each night, get back on the bus and go to the next city. And it's just wonderful the way it works out. And I couldn't ask to be with a bunch of more wonderful professional people in that regard. And I'm really, really happy I'm in the band. So it's a lot of fun for me. I have a great time doing it. Isn't it cool to be in a position like that after being in like dysfunctional situations and, and, or, or like the van or, you know, the reality, the realities of a dysfunctional band or touring in a van. Once you get to do what you're doing now, it's like really cool. No offense to, to Nevermore and all that stuff. That was my baby. And you know, I, me and Worrell and Jim and Van and all the other guitarists we've had in the revolving guitar of the revolving door of guitarists, uh, that was, it was a fun time, but I was a nervous wreck that whole time I was in that band because I just didn't know what was going to happen the next day, you know, with somebody being out of it or, (laughs) and I literally, I think developed like some sort of like stomach ulcer from worrying so much and drinking and like, and being an arch enemy is like, my God, it's just like all the pressure is off my shoulders. I basically just wake up, look at my phone, you know, to see what time sound check is and just be on time, you know, um, play my best every night. It's, it's really a lot of fun for me now. It's almost like, ha, I've landed and can finally feel comfortable playing in a live band. And it's, it's a lot of fun and playing with Mike, you know, he's so good live playing live with him every night. It's so much fun, man. He's, he's so much fun. He's a great friend. Do you think that how a band operates internally and whether or not they're fuck ups or operate, operate like a machine (laughs) or hate each other or love each other or whatever, whatever the dynamics are. Do you think that plays a big role in uh, the eventual success or lack thereof for a band? Dude, huge, huge. It's everything. It's everything. And if I look back on um, the Nevermore thing, we didn't have respect for each other. You know, there was, we were mostly mad at each other for something. That's how my band was. Yeah. And it was a horrible way to be. It's a horrible way to live your life, living uh, with secrets or things that you can't discuss within the band. If there's ever any issue in Arch Enemy that comes up, it's immediately discussed with the whole band sitting down to try to figure out the situation and the problem. And um, when you're sharing the same tour bus with somebody on a two month long tour, you have to be able to discuss things and look at each person in the eye and be honest. You know, that's the only way a band can be solid and keep moving forth. And unfortunately we didn't have any of that and nevermore. It's so sad because I really believe that band could have been a lot more, you know, if we would have just done things a little bit better and uh, we just didn't know, you know, the business aspect messed things up, uh, making wrong decisions, um, and just not being healthy, you know, and, uh, looking back at it, would I change anything? No, but I would definitely do, you know, some things a little bit differently if I knew I could do them better, you know, but that's just, you know, that's what we learn. We learn from what we do in our past mistakes. We just have to move on. We, we had the periphery guys on all separate, all three guitar players on separately, Um, And they all said the same thing. They all said that the reason that that band keeps kicking ass is their communication skills. 
with each other. Oh, that's that's a brilliant thing, and it's uh, so correct. Damn, Misha, he's such a nice dude. Mm-hmm. They all are. I remember him coming to Nevermore shows, being in the front row in front of me, <laughs> just having a great time, man. It was so cool. And he came onto our tour bus after the show and gave me a CD of all this stuff he was working on called Bulb. And I was blown away. I was like, my God. You actually listened to you're it. You're making... Yeah, hell yeah. I listened to it. I stuck it in the uh, the tour bus stereo. We actually listened to some tracks together. And I was blown away at the productions he was getting just from doing all this stuff in his own bedroom. I was like, dude, you're doing this in your own bedroom? He's like, yeah, man. I'm like, what are you what are you using? He's like, I, I, I use like a line six bean and uh, <laughs> drums from uh, Superior Drummer, whatever, one, whatever Superior Drummer was at that time. And I was just like, my God, this is incredible. I'm like, what are you going to do with all this? He's like, oh, I don't know yet. I, And you know, it just, it was just so much fun to watch him like kind of grow up and do what he's doing now. And he's so successful with everything. And I'm just so proud of him. He's I don't talk to him that much like I used to anymore, but, um, you know, I just, I follow him and I check out like everything he's doing. I, we spoke at the last NAM show last year and it was just great to kind of reconnect with him. And he's a wonderful dude. And, uh, Mark is killer, Helpern, all those guys. Out of curiosity, um, because you know, like, I don't know how it is now on tour cause I haven't toured in a long time, but bands, locals would always be giving us CDs in hopes that we would take them on tour or <laughs> get them signed or something. And I'm sure that that's happened to you a million times. And so what was it about Misha? But you couldn't possibly listen to all the demos that you got. Like, no way. It, no. Nobody can. So what was it about him that you actually listened to it? Well, number one, when I saw him in the front row getting into the music, I'm like, this kid's into this, you know? And then when he came out, um, I believe I somehow connected with him prior to meeting him at that show, though, like online. I can't remember precisely, but just him being in the front row and then him being out at the bus after the show with a CD in his hand. Um, and I just invited him onto the bus and we just started having a chat. And then we just started all listening to the music. It was me, him and Van, the drummer, I believe. We were just like, wow, this is incredible stuff, man. Sonically, it sounded killer. And the arrangements were really promising and it just, it sounded so professional. Like he just, he's kind of like one of those kids that knew what he wanted, you know, he just kind of knew it, you know, and that was really promising to me just knowing that. And I kept in touch with him ever since, you know? So yeah, it's been really cool to just see him grow and, you know, uh, musically and uh, just as a person, it's really cool. 2011-ish, I'm going to say, is when... I toured with Misha, but I think I met him like 2008 or 2009, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense, time-wise. What a cool guy, and um, he's just so much fun, you know? Such a nice person. Talented band. Very talented band. So tell us about your plugin. The plugin is is something that's been in the works now for, geez, like three years or something. I got together with my producer, Ryan Fluff, uh, Ryan Bruce. Uh, was working for JST at the time. And we basically just kind of went through... Ryan's your producer? No, no. Ryan is just a, a friend of mine uh, okay. who was actually working for JST at the time. Yes, back he was. Then, three years ago. He has since left the company. But uh, me, him, and my producer, Aaron Smith, got together one day and just kind of listened to all the heads that I've always loved. You know, the that being like the 5150 uh, PV block letter head, a rev generator 120... I think. And then we also had 
maybe an EVH head. I can't remember, but we just kind of captured the tones that I've always loved. And then we also added the pedals that I've always used in a live or studio situation kind of a thing and turned this into a very easy, intuitive plugin that's, I believe, came out very, very, very well. And so I'm really stoked about it. Technically speaking, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not a producer by any means or anything like that, but I can literally plug into this thing and get my certain sort of tone that I'm looking for in a matter of seconds. And uh, I really believe in it. You know, it's like putting my name on something is, you know, um, something I really am proud of. And uh, this is a really cool plugin for people, you know, and um, selling very well and doing very well right now. It just came out a few weeks ago and uh, it came out the gate real strong. Yeah, it really. I've been did, talking so. to Joey about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, very proud of this man. It's cool. You know, it's just it just makes things easy for me. You know, like when I want to compose late at night and stuff, and don't want to use a real amp or whatever. I just, you know, it's really the main thing I'm using right now to compose and write with, and um, it's awesome. JST uh, Tone Forge Jeff Loomis. Jeff Loomis. Yeah, you got it, my friend. Yeah, it yeah. <laughs> came out the gate real strong, and uh, it's. You know, a lot of amp sims come out and they don't always capture the attention. You know, mm-hmm. I pay I pay close attention to this stuff, obviously, yeah. because, um, with URM and Riff Hard and all that. So this one is one of those where right out the gate, people just dig it, which is cool. I'm glad to see that. I tell you, thank you very much. I tell you what, it's like when I first got the first beta version um, about five, six months ago or something... I was honestly really nervous. You know, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, I was, I was like, okay, um, plugging it in and or plugging into it and trying it out for the first time. I was immediately like, yes, this is what I was looking for. It's got that very organic, uh, feel and warmth of a real tube amp and, uh, the tightness ability of course is there, you know, putting the green pedal in front, like I've always done with pretty much the majority of my live setups. And that just tightens everything up. And, uh, you know, a lot of plugins in the past, when you mess with the tones and different knobs on them, just have really minimal effect. But this one, you know, you just touch something a little bit and it's just like, you're really able to sculpt your particular tone that you want. You know, it's, uh, it's very cool. So I'm really proud of this, man. It's, uh, something I want everybody to check out if they have the opportunity to or pick it up if they can. So, yeah. Well, congrats. Um, Thank we you, have sir. some questions from our listeners. Cool. Have we asked you some? Absolutely. Awesome. Question from Niels Van Dorn. Dear Mr. Loomis, just want to quickly say that you are the biggest reason that I play guitar. Never more blew my 15-year-old mind, and it still does. Anyway, here's my question. Was it difficult to get used to playing in front of huge crowds and headlining festivals when you joined Arch Enemy? Uh, Dynamo metal fest 2015 i was there how do you deal with that pressure do you have some pre-show ritual i would love to know thanks for the inspiration yeah great question of course i've been fortunate enough to play live shows now for a very long time and uh my first big live show was with nevermore when we played the dynamo open air festival in 95 and i'll never forget it there was like over a hundred thousand people there or something it was when they used to do festivals having large capacity crowds like that. They they don't really do that to that extent anymore just because of cleanup and like danger and all that stuff. But I just remember looking at the sea of people 
flipping the hell out because we were the breakfast band. In a good way or bad way? Well, in a good way, I guess. Uh, but it was just like so overwhelming. Like when you looked out at the people, it looked like the best way I can describe it to you is like if you're staring at the ocean when the waves move. But instead of being water, it was people. And it, w- it blew my damn mind. And so I guess that rush of energy just kind of overtook everything and just you just kind of go for it. It's that pre-show ritual where you're kind of always a little bit nervous before you actually get on stage because any given thing can go wrong. However, when I joined Arch Enemy, the, the, the team and the crew are so spot on, man. They are perfectionists that I literally go out every night with my heart not going over probably 80 beats a minute, man, because they are so technically perfect. And I just literally strap on my guitar, put my in-ears in and, and play the best show I possibly can. Another thing, if I may add, is something that's very helpful is that I have all of my MIDI changes pre-programmed going to the laptop of our drummer. So I don't have to do any tap dancing on stage, which, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. is really awesome. You don't have to like do any preset changes with my feet basically. So I'm literally free to just kind of roam around the stage wireless and everything changes for me. So that makes things a whole lot easier too. But do I get pre-show jitters? Hell yeah, all the time. But that's, I think, a healthy thing, and it makes it that much cooler and more exciting. If you don't, you're a bit of a psychopath. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Couldn't agree more. Okay, here's one from Tony Joliet. Having your very distinctive sound, was it difficult to join an already established band? Did you have to adapt your playing style to fit Arch Enemy? Absolutely, yeah. The weird thing with that was, I've always played six string guitar, of course. I started on a six string guitar and I focused on playing seven string a lot and nevermore in Conquering Dystopia. So I was kind of going back to the six string. However, the thing that made it the most weird was they tuned to C standard, which is like very, like, it took me a while to figure out the string gauge that I needed to do that tuning in to feel proper. I was actually using string gauge that was way too light at first. Or I'm sorry, too heavy at first, and I could barely bend the strings, man. So I had to like order a custom set from Ernie Ball that I finally was able to figure out a set that worked for me, and uh, now it works just fine. But yeah, with the C standard tuning, um, sometimes I tend to overbend slightly sharp on some notes, so I have to be very cautious of making sure I don't do that, seeing as though it's such a low tuning. Um, but that's really the only thing. Other than that, it's a uh, it's just been incredibly awesome because the live shows are almost always sold out and it's just tons of people at almost every show. So it's very, very awesome in that aspect. Yeah. Okay. Question from Hayden McLeod. When you were younger, did you have a structured practice routine to get to the level you're at now? And also how do you maintain your level of playing to the standard you're at? No, there was never too much structure. Never. I just picked, picked the guitar up and played and did whatever I could to try to learn new things every day. I think that consistency is a huge, huge part in becoming good at guitar playing. It's putting the time in, it's playing every single day and making your your life guitar. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I see a lot of players that wanna be good and pick up on great technique and they'll put, uh, you know, their two hours in a day, but then not play for a week. And that doesn't really get you anywhere. It's like taking two steps up a ladder and four back, you know? So consistency was really important for me. I didn't have any structure. I just played every day and I put the hours in, not because I had to, because I really just enjoyed it. 
And that's at the end of the day, what made me become who I am today. Last question. This is from Mike Sterry. Do you still rock the EMG 707s? What's your opinion on active versus passive and what made you choose your setup? I left EMG a while back ago. I'm now with Seymour Duncan and I have my own signature pickup out called the Jeff Loomis uh, Blackout. It's not really sounding like an active pickup, which it is. It's more based on a passive sound, but it's something that's always been a part of my sound is the, the way that I designed the pickup with them is just a, it's got quite a bit of gain actually, but it's extremely tight. It's kind of actually based off the EMGs that I actually used to use. So with that being said now, yeah, I've been with Seymour Duncan for the last four years now. So they are my family with a, with my pickup choice. And it's called the Jeff Loomis Blackout if you want to check it out. So pick it up. Awesome. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Sold everywhere in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs>